Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by the latest King Arthur on Broadway, a long line of kings in the Monty Python's uh, Spamalot. Harry Groner, welcome to Downstage Center. <laughs> Happy to be here. I should mention Harry Groner, of course, very well known for Crazy for You. He got a Tony nomination for that. Oklahoma about a quarter of a century ago, uh, the original cast of Cats, television, if people watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the mayor, Ralph on Dear John, a slew of uh, uh, theater credits down the line. In fact, uh, an associate artist at San Diego's Globe Theater, and with your wife, uh, Dawn Didowick, a founding member of Los Angeles the NTS Antaeus. Company. Antaeus. Antaeus Company. Antaeus Company. Yeah. Antaeus Company. That's easy for you to say. I know. It, it, well, you know, for a while they were all going, Antaeus, 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 Antaeus. <laughs> it's Antaeus Company. Yeah. Welcome. Well, Monty Python's Spamlot, the yeah. big, big hit at the Schubert Theater. You're up there on stage. You look so kingly in your crown, <laughs> and your beard is real. Yes, it is real. And I, I, I think that's how, why I got the part, because I came in and I already had a beard. You kind of look like a king. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, and, you know, and you know what's interesting is that I have to darken the beard. I have to darken it for, for, the, the, for, the, really? for the thing. And what they came up with, the, the combinations of two kind of, it's like a mascara, some of the two things, when it's all done, looks just like my beard when I was a young man. The color, which was very, very uh, dark red, uh, as opposed to my, my hair, which was light red. Very, very dark. And I look at it and I go, oh, my God, I haven't seen that in like 30 years. Well, your, your, your hair is kind of a sandy red. You know, it's, yeah, color. well, it, and that and mixing it with the gray now is getting yeah, gray. As opposed to a brilliant red. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe in the old days. <laughs> so plunging into spam a lot. What do you do to prepare to go into a show like this, other than prepare learning the, spe- the part and having a good time? No, I mean there's nothing to prepare. You, you, I, I read, a, I read a book, I listen to music. Well, this has been I, a great interview, then. Oh yeah, no, to 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 for that show, you just you really want to be in a good mood, and even if you're not in a good mood, what's great about this show? Even if you're not in a good mood, you come into that theater, do the first act of that show, and you can't help but just feel great. You really do, and everybody, uh, a lot of the other cast members feel the same way. You go, you you just can't help but have a good time in this silliness, in this absolute silliness. Well, from the moment the historian walks out on stage, Christian Ball, the very opening of the show, yeah. and starts things going with the fish-slopping dance, yes. it just gets crazier after that. How do you keep... Well, see, you're, you're kind of the the, uh, the one central grounding figure. Everything he, revolves around King Arthur. Yeah, he can't get too crazy. He's got to yeah. be... The time when he... When I, I, I think the character has a kind of... Um, amnesia as to his quest is when they say, well, let's go to Camelot because Camelot, of course, is Vegas. And so then they have a, he has a microphone in his hand and reality sort of goes out the, the, the window there. They all kind of go nuts when they all get to Camelot, but then, then it pulls them back out and God comes down and says, Here, here's where you have to go. But um, it's, just, it's just so much fun. Um, I, I know that sounds... Like, what else are you going to say? But it really is true. It well, really is true. Sitting in the fourth row of the audience the other night and watching you guys, you look like you're having fun. The whole cast looks like they're having we fun. We are, you know, and, and sometimes it's really hard to keep a straight face. Thank God um, when when Steve Casey's doing the, the French night up on the wall that I'm facing upstage because there are some nights where he does some things that it's just you just can't help but just start laughing. I'm facing upstage and I can sort of chuckle. I can sort of have a little grin on my face or something. And sometimes... Uh, some of the other guys just really just burst out laughing because something happens on stage and it just cracks them up and bam, they're laughing. But Arthur's got to be a you got to be a rock. Well, how did you come into the show to begin with? How, how did you get the part? My of agent Arthur? called. I was in LA. My agent called and said, "Are you interested in, in um, replacing? You know, going in as a replacement for Arthur?" I said, "Absolutely," because I missed it the first time out when they were casting. They already everything was already cast by the time 
sort of uh, we knew it was going to happen, and so I, I I couldn't be there for the initial auditions or you know even them talking about it. So and then when when I saw that it was going up, I said, "Oh man, I've missed this. I'm, I'm a Python fan, and I know the movie, and this would just be the best thing in the world." So when it came up, when he called. I said, absolutely. He said, okay, it's going to happen really fairly quickly. In other words, the audition process will happen very quickly in a few days. And in fact, did. Um, three or four days later, I was on a plane. Um, I arrived on a Wednesday, saw the show on a Thursday, auditioned on a Friday, left, b- go back to L.A. on a Friday night, and found out the following Tuesday. And from that point on, I had two weeks. Uh, my wife and I uh, had two weeks to get ready to ship 17 boxes and, and mm. come out here and and live in New York again, <laughs> you know, and do the show. Then we had three weeks rehearsal, and um, but I was off off uh, book. In other words, I had the words down, not the songs and 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 blocking, of course. But I had all the words down prior so, to first rehearsal. So, so when you went in for the audition, did you have the beard already? Yes. So that helped you get the part. Well, I think I think that's what got me the part. <laughs> <laughs> made, made you look the part. And, yes. and had you seen the show on Broadway? You had seen the movie the, the night before, just the night before, not not prior. To so that. you had never seen it until uh-uh. right before your audition. No, 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 no. Wow. Well, when going into this material, if you say you're a Python fan, for those of us who love Monty Python, we've been reciting these lines oh my God, yes. for years. So how do you go in and not be Graham Chapman? You certainly weren't going in to be Simon Russell Beale or no. to be Tim Curry's King Arthur. No, no, no. You just, uh, you just. One of the great things about their their writing, I think, is that they write, they write the most, the the silliest, of course, but the most absurd. Scenes, but play them with absolute sincerity. They they believe one hundred percent in 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 that particular reality of that scene, and so that's how I approach it, and that's what how I did the audition, and and I found out subsequently that that's what they liked about what I did. Um, you don't want to send it up. I don't want to send it up. I don't want to wink at the audience. I don't want to do any of that because that to me is not what Python does. It's it's it's. It, if there's any kind of uh, of, of uh, nudge or wink to the audience, it's all in the writing. It's not in the performance of it. So you just you you play the scenes as uh, you believe in them as much as you can in that specific reality. But in in this in this piece, it's interesting because you have you, you kind of have to ask yourself. And you don't have to answer the question, but you, you kind of have to ask yourself what reality are you, are you in? In the movie, you're in two. I think you're in you're in. You start, there's a historian who comes out and it's like a documentary, right? So are, is he really King Arthur? But then the two realities cross. Lancelot in one of the historian scenes comes right through the scene and kills the historian in the movie, right? Then it becomes, a, there's a secondary plot of they're investigating the murder. And then they get arrested at the end. So who are they? You know, is it really King Arthur or are they reenactors? And in fact, in England, I think there's a, there is a, uh, uh, an organization called Britannia that I think does reenactments and specifically of King Arthur stuff. But in this piece, you have three things. You have, are, is it really King Arthur? Are there reenactors? Or is it a Broadway show? And you find out at the end that it's been on, you've been on Broadway all the time, is what the, is what the Lady of the Lake says. But, you, but you're not aware of that. So you're just g- going off on your, your quest. And he, he's very clear about what he wants and what he has to do. And then things get in his way. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. And he has to overcome that. But it's... Uh, and again, when he gets to Camelot, it just gets nuts, you know. And he's out, has this amnesia, <laughs> you know. All of a sudden, he's in, he's in, he has microphones in his hands, he has everything else, and and forgets. But uh, and you get the experience because certainly there are people in the audience who know the Python material that there's they laugh and applaud at the start 
of sequences. Oh sure, oh yeah. Which which must be odd because they're 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 applauding their their own excitement at what you are about to do. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's wonderful. I don't find it odd. I'm, I'm so glad that they're doing it, and I love it when there are groups of young kids that come in. And many times we get them, and they're in the first balcony or second balcony, and they they the first time when you know initially when you know that you got that kind of group is when the monks come out and they hit themselves in the head, <laughs> and there's a applause or there's there's a lot of laughter. You know, you got a you got a, a python crowd. And I think that's great. So that when the Knights of Knee come on and they start screaming and yelling, that's great. Or when you start riding your imaginary horse, and they start going nuts. I, I I just I just love that. I just love it. Well, one, one thing I'm dying to ask you, and, and you work with them eight shows a week. Mm-hmm. What is Killer Rabbit really like off stage? What's what's he like in real life, Killer Rabbit? <laughs> the Killer Rabbit. Yeah, <laughs> he's just so good regular, on stage. Just just a regular guy. He's just a regular. Just, 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 just a nice just rabbit a, you like to hang out with. Yeah, just a regular, regular Joe. <laughs> just, just, just a regular rabbit. <laughs> just a regular rabbit. I love that bunny. I love that that, that little thing. It's so cute. <laughs> you commented a moment ago about the fact that sometimes you crack each other up on stage, and of course you've joined the company. And at this point, in any Broadway show's run, the company is an evolving one. And indeed, you've had people who've just joined it even since you've committed. Now, how, you've mm-hmm. been doing it for how long? Uh, this is, I'm in my 11th week, I think. Right. But And you've had changes literally in the past couple of weeks. How does that dynamic change when new people come into those parts? How does, how does that change it, your performance? It, it doesn't really change the performance. It changes, it may change rhythms. It may change some timing. But it doesn't really change the, the performance that much. And then after about a week... You find that if you've if you may have lost a laugh at the beginning of the week because someone is a new person has come in and rhythm has changed that that laugh will be back by the end of the week it, or it might be in a different place it may have shifted a bit um, and that's just the the way shows evolve and the way you have to do them now and bring people in constantly there's a constant change and, and ha- that's just fine and how about for the people who've been in it's only a couple left from the original cast. Christian Borle and one or two others that have been in Steve Rosen, I think, was yeah, in the original. Steve Rosen, and Michael McGraw, Michael McGraw, still, still of course. Well, they're just they're just such they just they just go with the flow. They just go with whatever whatever happens. Uh, my understanding from what I've been told before um, that when people come in, that it just it just shifts, it just changes, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make the show any better or any worse. It just changes, and it's still Python. It's still Spamalot, and the audience. Still goes nuts at the end, and uh, and I think that's a testament to the piece itself, you know. <laughs> so it's 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 great. I don't, I don't find it difficult. I don't have a, I don't have any trouble with it. Well, pretty much uh, every actor that we ask says kind of the same thing that each performance is different, each performance is unique, and no two are really the same. It would seem to me that this show more than most. Prevent, pre- presents opportunities to be very different from night to night or performance to performance. Is is there a uh, a lot of difference over a period of time? From one performance to the next, or is it well, pretty much the same? not not for me. I don't I don't find it. Um, I try to be as consistent as I can. Um, in in every night, things of course change. Things happen. It was one night where where uh, Steve uh, Casey, as uh, the Knights of Need, was walking off stage and he got caught on set. So you have to you have to do something, and somebody goes over and hitches him, and then there's some lines exchange or whatever it is, and the audience laughs, and you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to go. You have to go on with it. it I, I try not to change too much, but but things happen that'll that'll crack you up and crack the, crack the other guys up. But you can't let you can't let that you can't go nuts with it. You can't just fall apart. Well, here you are are playing a rather silly in a silly show, 
a more or less a straight character, but he, King Arthur, is also silly. Yet you've played Shakespeare. You've played a lot of different roles. Yeah. Um, what kind of roles do you like playing? I read somewhere you don't really like um, uh, singing and dancing as much as acting. Is that, is that well, basically no, the, true? The, the, that's that's not maybe you're misquoted, I, but I don't know where I might have where I might have said that. I don't know that I said I do enjoy singing and dancing. Uh, it's harder now, of course, because you're <laughs> older. So I, but I've always um, uh, enjoyed acting in plays just as much as acting in musicals. And in fact, the career has uh, they, they've, they've taken parallel courses. I, t- I do a musical, then I do a play, then I do a musical, musical play, play, play. You know, it'd be that kind of thing. Um, so, because I started out dancing, I started out as a, as a in a ballet company, and the dancing and the acting uh, started pretty much at the same time. That was in San Francisco? In San Francisco, yeah. and which means that you really are not going to end up being a very good ballet dancer, <laughs> mm-hmm. because you can't, you, to be a ba- good ballet dancer, you really have to devote your life to it, and you've got to, that's, that's it, that's it. You can't really, ha- in my opinion, you can't do something else. And I was doing something else, so it meant that the ballet will help the other dance, but that's not where my life was going to be. And in fact, it, at some point in the company, I didn't want to do that anymore, so it was all right. Um, but, uh, no, I, 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 love, I, I love doing plays. The bad thing about doing plays for me is that I don't maintain myself physically. I don't go to classes. I don't do that stuff, and I should, and I just can't. Uh, if I'm doing a play, I want to just focus on the play and not go to a dance world. Um, and I've just found it difficult. So I, so if I'm, and especially later now, if I start a musical, I have to go into a, a kind of training. I've got to, you have to go on a diet, and you have to stretch your body, and you got to get stamina, and you have to do all that. And now it's really hard <laughs> to do that. <laughs> well, having started with a dance background, and you were dancing really as a child, you were doing yeah. dance training. Yeah. How did you, if you went first into ballet, what was the transition from ballet in, you, you say it was almost at the same time, mm-hmm. but at a certain point, you really had to make the choice, as you say, not to do ballet and move in, into really the theatrical. Well, idiom. I got sort of, I got sort of, um, uh, I fell out of love with with ballet. It was going to be my life at some point. I really, I, I love the company and I love dancing, and, and that was going to be my life, the ballet. And then I just fell out of, out of love with it. I just didn't want to do that anymore. I said, well, I, I want, I want to do something else. Um, the last year of junior high school, I did a. What, what was basically the first musical, and it was a musical version of James Thurber's 13 Clocks, and it was put together by the music, drama, and English department. And that was the first time that I had to sing and dance and act uh, on stage. And then right after that in high school, I was in the drama department, and I did uh, Peter in the Diary of Anne Frank. But I was also in the dance department in high school, so you'd, you'd go to rehearsals for your plays, and then you'd be in dance programs and all that, and that was just uh, your life. And I'm back and forth um, dance and acting, but uh, that's really what I and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do all of it. I wanted to, I wanted to dance in, in shows and then in musicals and in plays. And you began. You were doing after school. You were doing regional work. Uh, you did work in San Diego and region, some regional theater at that. Well, time. San Diego came much much later. Much later than I than I. Yeah, San Diego mis- was no, no, San Diego was much uh, was much later. There was a um, while I was still in college at uh, the um, City College of San Francisco. Um, there's a company, and it still exists, uh, in Santa Maria, California, called the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts. Um, Donovan Marley, who ran the Denver Center for, for many, years, many years yep. and has since retired, was the artistic director of that company. I started it when I was 18. This is a, a company that did five shows in rotating rep, t- 
two musicals and three uh, plays. And um, you'd go down there and you'd start rehearsals and in the morning you rehearse one thing and in the afternoon you rehearse something else and in the evening you rehearse something else. You rehearse, the fir- you rehearse for three weeks. The, after the first three weeks, the first show opens. Three days later, the next show opens. Three days later, the next show opens. And then a week later, the fourth show opens. And a week later, the fifth show opens. And it all fit into the uh, rep. And it's all and it's rotating rep. Every night's mm. a different show. Um, and the shows could change from matinee to evening. <clears throat> and I started there doing uh, the musicals. And then I would do plays. And then I eventually choreographed. And I choreographed a, a bunch of shows there. And, um, and did plays. I think my last year there was in 76. And... Um, I, I, I choreographed the dances in Romeo and Juliet and Much Ado, played Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet, um, choreographed Gypsy, um, the utter glory of Morrissey Hall, uh, something else that we were, we were, it was just so much. It was just, he just piled things on. It was just great. And it's interesting because the choreography also is something that you were doing fairly at a young age. Mm-hmm. You certainly, there's some interesting credits that you'd done cheerleading choreography at oh, one point. You did marching band choreography for Is There Life After High School? Yes, and but that was... Why, why did you not continue to pursue choreography? Well, that all happened really sort of on this one day. The cheer, Let me just clear up. The cheerleading, What that was actually the show that was Vanities, and that was at the Actors Theater of Louisville, and that was the play that I met my wife. Uh, she was uh, playing Mary in Vanities. Um, and John Jory uh, found out from Patrick Tovat, um, wonderful actor who I had just finished working with in Candide, <clears throat> that I choreographed. And so he asked me if I would choreograph the Cheers. I'd never choreographed Cheers bef- uh, before, but I've, I, and I'm not, I wasn't a sports nut, but I saw enough on television that I could fake it, and I certainly could stage it. So I did that. My wife was a cheerleader, so she she knew that I didn't know what I was doing. But she, I, she she could tell. But she could tell. <laughs> but it, it it all worked out fine, and. Uh, the uh, the marching band stuff was in is a life after high school, um, and they that was a, a troubled uh, experience. They fired the director, fired the choreographer, and I, I choreographed and sort of volunteered my services to simply band aid the show to closing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and uh, we we got through that. But but there was a day where in Seattle when I was going to school there um, to an actor training program there, I was also taking ballet classes. Eve Green was my teacher. She was one. She was my fairy godmother. She was just the best, best, best lady, so supportive of me. And she was going away on vacation. She gave me the keys to the dance studio on the university campus, big, huge studio. And she said, "Just go nuts, go nuts, and make something, choreograph something." And I said, "Great, cool." So, and I want to do something, some, uh, some stuff to some Joplin pieces, some Scott Joplin pieces. I had the music. I had the stuff. I got in there. And I put on the music, and I started and. Just nothing happened. Nothing hmm. happened. And I went, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and I tried, I tried again. The next day, nothing. Finally, I said, that's it. I, I, I just, I don't have it. I can't do it anymore. Hmm. So I packed up the music, took the keys, locked the studio, and that was it. And from that point, I just, I, I don't do it anymore. Um, I certainly done it here and there just to help out little pieces, but to choreograph a show or to uh, choreograph a dance piece or something, I just, I, I'm... The the love isn't there. You got to have it in your gut, and I had it. I had it before, and I just didn't have it anymore. So I said, "That's it. Stop." Even now, in later life, no desire to go back no, to it. No, I don't really have any. 
because I remember the feeling. I remember the feeling of oh 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 I want to do this and I want to do that and oh mm-hmm. that and then and then with this number you can do this. And I remember that feeling, mm-hmm. and it it just bubbles up and I can't wait to get out. And I don't have that feeling, so you just don't force it. You don't force it. Well, well after it, these years of uh, regional theater and and doing the choreography, whatever, then you made your Broadway debut in Oklahoma. Yeah. And you were Tony nominated for that. Yeah. And you played Will Parker in the revival of Oklahoma, not the original 1943. No. <laughs> you weren't around, nor was I, nor Howard in 1943. But uh, in 1979, Will Parker in Oklahoma. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, I, it, that's the, the way all the shows happen. You audition, you get the part. Um, it, well, you don't always get the part, but in my case, I, I was lucky and I got the part. And then we started in uh, at the Pantages uh, in L.A. And it was supposed to. It was only supposed to be a tour, <clears throat> a nine month tour. But by the time we got to Washington, um, they knew they had something very, very special, and they decided to bring it in. So they brought it in, and we were, we were at the palace. What was great about that experience was our, our, our direct link to the original company with Agnes DeMille, who was still alive, and she was very much involved in the show, and she came, in fact, on tour a number of times and saw the show and would give notes, and we would be in the lobby of the theater, She'd sit in the chair. We'd be on the floor all around her like little kids as she mm-hmm. gave notes and told stories and made clear their intent, their intention, and what they wanted, the kind of show they wanted. Uh, Jay Blackton, who was the original conductor in 43, was in our pit. Mm-hmm. So you're standing up on that stage singing those songs. You look in the pit, and you see the Jay Blackton's face. Um, Incredible experience. Of course, she, Agnes DeMille, kind of revolutionized the way that dance was performed on Broadway with Absolutely. her with her dream ballet sequence in Oklahoma that was so different at the time in 1943. Absolutely. And what was uh, another thing that I thought was unique about this particular production was um, it seemed to be cast uh, the way m- my idea of the way the old uh, Broadway musicals were cast. You had a dancing chorus, you had a singing chorus, you had the principals. So that when the dance happened, and in particular the ballet sequence in Oklahoma, you had these fabulous ballet dancers dancing this beautiful, beautiful choreography. And when the singing happened, when you had the women singing Many a New Day, it was this glorious sound. You go, oh, my God. And then you had the rest of us doing the, the rest of the stuff. But as a dancer, to get notes from Agnes DeMille. Oh, it's just. I mean, can you remember some of the things she actually, said the, to you? The one, the one note. I remember was not a dance note. It was about a word in a song. They're very specific in, in how they wanted the words to be pronounced, whether they were actually what a, a, a southern dialect or a, or an Oklahoma dialect or what it would sound like. They, uh, I think I said, um, uh, um, er, um they go on about as uh, oh, they go on about everything's about up to date in Kansas. They, they go on go. about as far as they can go. Go on about as far as they can go. And she said, "No, say fur. Yep, say fur. F e r, not f a r. Go on about as fur as they can go." She was very, very clear about that. And I go, I, and I would say to her, "But that's, but that's, that's not how. Wave with the finger. No, you say, you say fur. You say she was very, very clear about what the, what the lyric was and how you were supposed to say it." So you got she's vocal, absolutely vocal right. notes from Agnes I got DeMille. vocal <laughs> notes from Agnes DeMille. She did well, say she did, it was one end of the uh, end of the uh, uh, farmer and a cowman uh, number where Will does a series of bell kicks where the, the whole company goes higher, 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 and at the end of that uh, piece of music there were three musical accents that she then said, and this is what she she part of her technique was she would 
she would choreograph to the strengths of her dancers and use their personalities in in the movement. And she said, on those three beats, what are some of the things you can do? What kind of tricks can you do hmm. to finish out that stuff? And uh, having some ballet background, I said, well, I can do I can do two pirouettes, a double tour, land on my back, and kip up <laughs> for the final beat, and then for the final for the very last bump, just sort of shrug and say, like, as if that was the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> See this big spectacular thing, and they get up and go. Eh. Like that, and she said, "Fine, do that." <laughs> Interesting that she's asking you for input rather than saying, "Here's what I want you to do." It's she's what? saying, "She said, what, she makes what, some suggestions. She said, what can you do here? I need, yeah. I need three, three yeah. things. What can you, what can you do?" And I said, and I said "Well, let's let's try this." She said, "Fine, do that." Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about how to sing as fur as you can go, fur uh, as you can as, go, as fur yeah. as fur as they can go, whatever. Going about whatever. as fur as they can go. Yeah. yeah. Why don't we hear how you actually did it in the show on the, on the CD <laughs> as Will Parker and pay attention to as fur as they can go in Kansas City. Well, they went about as far as they could go, and <laughs> Harry Groner doing the line just the way he directed, I guess, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you also, that production was directed by William Hammerstein. You yes. really had, because you we mentioned a, the I connections know. to the original. You mentioned Jay Blackton and Agnes DeMille. How much in that show, which really was a major revival of Oklahoma and yeah. a huge success in, in the late 70s, how much, when you were doing that show, were you being asked to simply replicate what it had been, and, or as you say, you know, Agnes DeMille saying, "Well, what can you do here?" Um, I, it, I don't. I know that in the in the dance, they were very very specific. Uh, Agnes, of course, would, as I said before, she would look at the individual dancers, and she may make adjustments depending on what she felt would be best for that for that dancer to convey what she wanted to convey. But in the staging of the scenes, I don't remember. Uh, Bill ever saying, now this is, I want this here, a move here, or do this, or uh, to be very specific, to try to make it seem like the original production. He just let it evolve, which we all appreciated. You know, we were aware of 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 um, how, what what I think is needed for that piece, the innocence that it needs. I mean, they have to be as innocent as the, as the state is. The state is brand new, and I think that they have to be uh, completely Innocent. I think all the the even the um, I can't say no, you know, to all these guys and the implication that's there. It's still got to be innocent. It isn't. She's not going off and you know. She really. It's it's got to be innocent. Hmm. Except for Judd. Judd's the only one who has a. He's in a whole other world, and that's the other side of it. That that comes into all this in, into all the innocence and disrupts it all until it's until it's resolved. Well, following Oklahoma, Oh Brother ran one or two performances. Yeah, only three, actually. Only three, three performances. One we opened on Tuesday, three. closed Wednesday night, I think. But you're it, very enthusiastic about that oh, show. Oh, I love that show. I love that Tell show. Tell us about it. Oh Brother was uh, written by Donald Driver, um, music by Michael Valenti, uh, and I believe orchestrations, Billy Byers did them. This was a musical version of Comedy of Errors set in the Middle East. Hmm. Now, you talk about timing. We were in Washington uh, in in previews and that's when um, Anwar Sadat was assassinated. So we brought everything to the forefront and we had we really had trouble there, I think. And I think the critics in New York uh, really came down, I think, much uh, too heavily on this little piece of fluff. But having th- that said, um, it was really the sound of it. Uh, it, it was not unlike Spamalot, actually. In that, as I think of it, in the, in the silliness of it, in the in the bits that we did in the piece. Um, I mean, when you have when you have a chase scene, this is huge chase scene, 
and there are mount there are sand dunes from which you can up you can you can come out of the sand dunes and there was there was a huge number where all the guy women and 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 men that were in veils there was a huge wind machine on one side of the stage where it had this wind, and they were all and 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 uh, David James Carroll standing on top of this thing with a big rifle and a whole thing he looked like a, a movie star he looked like a Valentino mm. it was incredible but there was a chase scene in the middle of which you had a guy in an Ayatollah mask. <laughs> you know, just sitting there. And he would just sort of sit there. And then as the chase scene happened, he would slowly lean to one side. And it would get precarious, you know, further and further and further over. Then at one point, the whole chase scene would stop. You'd write him, and it would continue. You had a camel, uh, two guys in a camel suit with a, 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 a Bernus, big green glasses, I think, and pink tennis shoes. Who th- This camel would just be around all the time. And just that was the logo of the show, as yes, I recall. Yes. Was that that particular yes. camel? It was a camel. It, just to give you an idea of the silliness of it. However, they, the numbers that they had, the numbers that Michael Valenti wrote. Judy Kay had a number that she had this huge scimitar, huge scimitar that, of course, she turns around and uses the handle as a microphone that literally stopped the show. We would stand backstage and watch the clock, watch that little little second hand. Uh, go around the clock and time it. How, she would literally stop the show. You go 5, 10, 15, 20 seconds. And the audience seconds, was applauding or laughing? Applauding the uh-huh. entire time. And you go, oh my God. <laughs> we had great numbers of wonderful cast. You had, uh, of course, David James Carroll. You had Mary Master Antonio, um, uh, Allison Reed, Judy Kay, Alan Weeks, Larry Marshall, uh, Bruce Adler, uh, Richard Schul, um Joe Morton, um, it was it was it was just an incredible, wonderful, silly piece. And and my wife saw it in Washington and in New York. And she said the consistent p- little phrase that she would hear in the lobby was, "This is the stupidest thing I've ever seen," but I'm having the absolute best best time. <laughs> and the audience would just be would be convulsing. You could see that there was a clip once of the audience convulsing in the in the audience and leaning and going back and forth and leaning and at the end they'd be dancing in the aisles it was it was truly a wonderful experience that the critics just didn't get well that show was 25 years ago 1981 oh my god in this post 9-11 world how would that show play oh, we, today we, we'd or, get or, or bombed, it, wouldn't we yeah we'd get bombed you probably would <laughs> from what you've said about it hmm. we would there would be a, we, we couldn't do it how sad is that mm-hmm. so from that short run you've already mentioned the troubled production of is their life after high school <laughs> but then for f- as as your your payback your karmic payback for that uh, the next show did pretty well cats yes yes everybody knew when that show came out and how smart how smart they they are with with publicizing they're all always my Cameron McIntosh is, is brilliant when it comes to all that um we all knew that if 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 you got this gig, you could pretty much have it for as long as you wanted because it was going to run forever. Um, you knew that even yeah. You, I, I certainly knew that. I certainly knew it. And, and with other people in the show, Terry Mann, Hector, and I, we shared a dressing the size of this table. Um, uh, we certainly knew that if you're going to be in this show, you could have it for as long as you you, you want to be in the show. It was going to run forever, and in fact, 18 years later. Um, I think that's when it closed 18 years later. Well, you were but, employed at the time the cast was coming to Broadway. You were working at the Old Globe in San Diego. Yes, I was doing Billy Bishop Goes to War and um, The Importance of Being Earnest with Victor Garber and Alice Rabb. And you were willing to leave that to come to New York and do cast? I had no choice. You have to do it. I didn't want to leave it. Billy Bishop was one of the best experiences uh, I, I, I'd ever had. I loved doing that show. Um, 
and I didn't want to go, but Jack O'Brien and Craig Knoll, Tom Hall were were just wonderful. They understand. They certainly understand. Um, and you're the proximity of San Diego to Los Angeles. People have to leave. They get series. They get this. They get that. They go all the time. So it's uh, that happens there. But and then David Ogden Styers took over. I think he learned that show in in he won in two weeks. That's that's an unbelievable feat for that particular show. But um, yeah. Yeah, left it, had to do it, and uh, was in it for 14 months. Well, the character you played was kind of uh, the second-in-command, right below old Deuteronomy. Yeah, he's supposed to make sure that everything goes well for this one magical evening. And he's around to protect uh, all the cats and be second to Deuteronomy, and then... And um, he ends up, along with another cat called Alonzo, fighting McCavity and all that stuff. So it was... It was great. Who were the other original cats you were playing with? Who was old Deuteronomy? It was Ken Page. And as I said, Hector, uh, Terry Mann played T- Tugger. Terry um, Mann. Hector played um, Alonzo. Um, and Betty Buckley. Betty Buckley. Well, yeah, the voice of God, isn't it? I mean, she's just <laughs> incredible voice. Um, but that was really a, a truly, truly uh, amazing experience. And I got to tell you, when, when we opened in Oklahoma, I have a, a reason for this. When we opened in Oklahoma, that opening night audience, the applause of that opening night audience was so phenomenal. I thought nothing would ever, ever surpass that until Cats. Mm. And that audience was... I, I never heard a sound like that. And I said, nothing's ever going to surpass that until Crazy For You. Well, speaking of Crazy For You, you can't go wrong with How's Gershwin music. You, yeah, you do gr- very great well. Oh, my gosh. Well. I've done can this it, before. You can never go wrong with Gershwin music and mm. then the choreography by Susan Stroman. Oh it's just God. one of those wonderful, wonderful shows. As a genius. Which played a long, long time. You were in it for like over a thousand performances. Yeah, three years. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a good run for any actor. Oh, but you know, it went by so fast. It really did. I know this sounds, oh, yeah, he's going to say that. But it really is, that was, for me, one of the best, best times. Those three years, and they went by so fast. And the cast uh, stayed together for a long time before it started. The, the, the core uh, uh, principal stayed together for a really, really long time before you know we started breaking off and doing other things. Uh, and Jody was just the best. Uh, Bruce Jody Adler, Benson. Jody Benson was just the best. Um, uh, Bruce Adler, that was our fourth Broadway show together. Um, uh, is just you know we have a shorthand we 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 have a excuse me a comedy shorthand we don't even have to we just we, I know what he's thinking he knows what I'm thinking so that scene in Crazy for You that the the double zangler scene in the second act people always say well how, that must take forever to, uh, would, would, to work uh, out just just recap that in scene crazy, well, and yep. there is a in in Crazy for You those who haven't seen the show the um, it gets too complicated to try to explain there is. Uh, um, a character that, that Bruce Adler played uh, called Zangler. He is the he is the owner of a theater producer, and um, I I imitate him at some point and dress like him. Um, f- all it's all to get the girl that you love. Um, we both of us at one point get really really drunk because the the two women that we are pursuing don't are seem to be rejecting us and so we get drunk really really drunk and we end up on the stage at the same time and I'm dressed as a zangler uh, just uh, the same way that the the, <laughs> the Bruce is so and then we we're at this table and we start um, uh, uh, lamenting the fact that these these girls don't uh, want have want have anything to do with us. And there's sort of a mirror scene, and that goes into a song and goes into a dance. And, uh, and 
it was, what I loved about it is, and I said this in the, in the, when we were putting it together, it says, I don't, I don't want this to be like your regular mirror scene where you, where you look at it and you, you sort of, you think it's a mirror, you know, uh, um, um, Harpo and Lucy did that so brilliantly mm-hmm. in that episode that, that for those of you who, who know that show, um, but, but you kind of, you, you're testing to see if it's a mirror or not. And then the other person, it isn't that they're so drunk and so self-involved. Mm-hmm. They don't, they just assume it's a mirror and they're talking to themselves mm-hmm. and so that they never acknowledge that it's a mirror. You never make that like step. They just they just accept the fact that there's a that there's a reflection of themselves, and it worked. I, I just thought it was great, but it didn't take us that long to put together. Susan was in the room, of course, and she guided and she helped. But Bruce and I just went bing, 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 and it was done. <laughs> Speaking of Susan Stroman, there was one number that really stands out in my mind where you stack the chairs up this big yeah. high pyramid of chairs and you climb up the chairs. Yes, how was so that fast, done? Man. Yeah. Well, you you yeah, you got to rehearse it within an inch of its life. I would think. Yeah, and 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 it's the technical part of it. You got to know where all those chairs are stacked. Got to make sure this chairs are sturdy, the right kind of chairs. You got to and everything is choreographed to an inch of its life because she wanted it to happen instantly. Well, were they regular chairs? Or were they interlocking? No, no they, they were regular chairs, but you had to. But they were extremely sturdy. But and they had to be piled a certain way. Yes, yeah, yes, very oh, yes. And that hall had to be figured out, and she figured all that stuff out of how you pile the chairs a certain way and where everybody stands, and then where everybody um, stands and, and what chairs they hold on to to be extra supports. So they would hold on to the chairs and so that Jody and I could just go whoop right to the top like that. And, and the way in which I was done, the audience was just left breathless because it was impossible to do and yet it was happening. Yeah, yeah. You know, how did they do that? Yeah, yeah I <laughs> now, know. When, when, when Susan Stroman first suggested that, did you guys think she's crazy? Oh, no, 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 no. You don't. So she knows. You just go with it. You just go and trust. She's just brilliant. You just say, no, Susan wants to do this. It'll happen. <laughs> and, and, and how often did the pyramid collapse? Did the chairs I don't think fall? it ever. I don't think it ever collapsed. I really? think we might have missed a step one uh-huh. uh, once or twice, or uh-huh. there might have been a, a, a chair that was off, uh, not quite at the right place, and so we would get a cue or something and know that you can't really go up there, and then you wouldn't complete uh-huh. the pyramid. But uh-huh. it never fell apart. Uh, amazing. Yeah. You had the experience with Crazy for You that certainly very few actors we're about to be able to bring in here today had, which is to be in a new Gershwin musical. Nowadays, of course, they'd call it a jukebox musical because it was taking existing material into a new story. But but how much was, was that material developed in the rehearsal process and how much of it was the songs were there? Ken Ludwig wrote his book around the songs yeah. and it was it was I think done there's there there are enough meetings between the creative staff before even the cast gets there that they have an idea I, I don't know how many I think they had an idea of what certain songs that they they did want in there um, but my understanding is that the uh, that the Gershwin estate gave them basically you know a treasure trove of music and said you can use whatever you want there were one or two musicals that they said no and I don't I, I can't remember what musicals they were. They may have been uh, um, uh, political in nature. Some of these, uh, probably of the I sing, maybe would not have would have not have necessarily. Fit, yeah, I, I, I'm actually I'm, I'm not sure. There were one or two that they said you can't go for you can't from this, but everything else you can use from you can use the from anything else. And mm-hmm. they would just sort of play. Peter Howard was incredible. Peter Howard was a, a, the uh, um, musical director, and uh, uh, he. Uh, no, Paul, Paul uh, Gemignani was a musical director. What was the specific title for Peter? Hmm, I don't know. You'll, you'll see it in the, in the thing here. Have to check it out. <laughs> um, um, but he could just 
uh, he could just pick and say, well, well, we'll put this here as incidental music, or we'll do this, we'll put this, we'll put that. There was a scene once, it was cut from the show in Washington, um, that was uh, completely, it was all music. It was mimed, basically. And there was a prop built. It was a printing press uh, that was built to for this scene where... Uh, I go into the post office where where Jody's working, and I'm trying to impress her, and she's unimpressed, and she's working at this printing press because there's going to be there's going to be this this uh, event that's happening. The printing press gets stuck. I offer to help, and but this is all in mime. This is all done with with you know in, like a silent movie time, and when we work that out in rehearsal, Peter would just say, "Well, we can put this, we can do this," and he would just just orchestrate it right there just put it all and use whatever song seemed to fit and but this particular prop this printing press did all these things it would it would start it did it did of course turn and um sheets of uh, of posters would come out uh, printed um it wasn't printing obviously they were already printed but it would it would look like it printed it would come out um uh, your hand could get stuck into it and a flat hand would come out from and come back again it would punch you ink would squirt out and uh, eventually it got so out of hand that I tried to get on top of it to stop it, and then it would buck. <laughs> it would buck and, and just go nuts. And then at that point, the only thing to do is to kill it. So then Jody went to the wall, got this big old shotgun, and shot it. And then it died. It actually died. It went, clunk, and then just died. <laughs> and that lasted, I think, three performances. Uh, and then they had to cut it. That thing, that, that prop cost 40 grand, I think. What a shame they had to cut it. <laughs> oh, my God. That was a wonderful little scene. But, it, yeah. but also, it, 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 uh, it, it didn't work within the rest mm-hmm. of the scenes that were around it. Mm-hmm. So they had to just take it out. But, uh, and also, the costume department didn't like the ink on my white. I had this red <laughs> ink on my white costume. And they had to clean that every night. care yeah. for that. Well, speaking of a treasure trove of Gershwin music, songs like um, I Can't Be Bothered Now and uh, uh, Shall We Dance and Someone to Watch Over Me yeah. and Embraceable You and I Got Rhythm and uh, Naughty Baby, They Can't Take That Away From Me, Nice Work If You Can Get It. Why don't we play one of the songs that you, your character, Bobby Child, performed in the show? Why don't you pick right. one that you like and we'll, we'll play it? Maybe you could set up how um, how it works. Uh, oh, the, in ni- the show. nice work if you can get it is is um, uh, he she's completely um, rejected him and he's 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 very sad and he sings this song <laughs> all by himself in the second act. It's a great dance too, but he's crawled up on the theater and then he gets down and girls pop up and he dances with these girls. But it's all it's a sad number. From crazy for you, Gershwin standard. Nice work, if you can get it. Harry Groner as Bobby Child in, in that show. That marvelous show. Marvelous. Oh, I know. That would be a great one to bring back, wouldn't it, to revive that? A revival of an old feeling show. Yeah. You it know, was th- there was a, there was a, um, my wife Dawn was working in Montana, and there was a company there that was, uh, they were doing crazy for you. Uh, and it was, the, the two actors playing the two leads were, were equity actors, but the rest were from the community. Mm. And it was the first time that I'd seen another production of Crazy for You. And I got to tell you, both of us just sat there and wept. We just wept. It was so dear and so mm. sweet. I just, and then you look at the characters and you think of, you think of the, your, your friends, the other actors that were in it, and you just, it was great. It was great. We always focus in these interviews pretty much on the theater work, but I do want to ask you, as someone who's done a lot of television work, and we mentioned at the beginning, certainly Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which yeah. for a certain subset of us, you're you're well-remembered for that. <laughs> but you did have a, a, a several-year run on 
uh, sitcom on NBC, Dear John. Dear John, yeah. And very often when we talk to people who've done television, it's all about how do you get away from the impression that you formed in people's minds on that show. What strikes me about Dear John is that you were unrecognizable. Yeah. The work that you do in theater, what is it, what is it like to not be burdened by that kind of image because a lot of people look for the TV fame and you you've managed to be a chameleon and not not have that impact on what you do on stage yeah it's it, I've been fortunate that way because casting of Jared John I thought was very very lucky because as we all know they'll cast a type they'll cast if they want someone who is who is a, a nerdy um, guy they'll cast someone who is who is that and in in my case um, I wasn't that, and I went into the audition thinking, never, having never gone uh, to a, a network audition, thinking, well, this is your, they're testing you, so they will have a makeup person, or they'll have somebody there that will make you do... Of course, there's nobody there. And I said to myself, well, I've, if I'm going to go for this, i got to go for this. So I went to... Uh, there was a prop guy there, and I said, have you got, a, have you got any glasses? Uh, I went to the makeup person. I said, just give me, give me a comb. And I went to the bathroom and combed my hair, and I had the glasses, and... Mm-hmm. and uh, um, I, I was seen to be dressed okay, and and you went in and and did it, and and the the other person that was there were two other people um, auditioning with me. John Peelmeyer was one, who wrote Agnes of God, the one playwright. Play, right? yeah. Yes, John Peelmeyer was one, and then there was this other actor. He was he was uh, an Hispanic actor, who auditioned for it as well. And I lucked out and got it, but 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 I had to. You had to put all that stuff on, and and it's really been great because in in L.A. Um, I. I'm given the opportunity to play all different kinds of parts. I don't get lumped into into one kind of part. And because I, I, I just it's love surreal that. to have a Broadway yeah. leading man, you know, romantic leading man yeah. who is an uber nerd <laughs> for, for three years on network TV. He was an uber nerd, right? <laughs> There's a phrase I don't get to use in our interviews enough, so thank you for giving me the opportunity. <laughs> Oh, he was great. No, he was great. And 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 uh, Jimmy Burroughs, who directed the the pilot in the first few episodes, he kept on saying, uh, my voice kept on dropping. He kept on saying, bring it up, bring it up, bring up your voice, bring up your voice. He was great. But but I, I love doing that. And Jane Jane Carr, um, uh, who I see a lot, and she's going to be in Mary Poppins now. She's going to be in Mary Poppins. I see Jane a lot. I just saw Judd recently. He came to see the show. Judd uh, Hirsch. Judd Hirsch. And uh, Jerry Burns I see uh, uh, quite often, actually, in L.A., mainly at auditions and things. But uh, I love that company. I love that cast. We had a great time together. Uh, and it was a good show, I think. It was a really fun show. At least, you know, the audiences that say, oh, we love that show. We had a great time. But it was fun to do. Well, we've been talking about what you've done in the past, what you're doing currently, playing King Arthur and Spamalot. What would Harry Groner like to do in the future? Anything that you have not done that you really have a burning desire to do? Well, you know, I, I'd like to do more film. Actually, I don't. Th- I, I haven't done enough of that. I, I really like it. I really like working in front of a camera, and I'd like to do more. I'd like to do more film. I saw an interesting comment in, in an interview with you. I hope it's accurate that in New York you are perceived yeah. as a musical comedy guy, mm-hmm. and on the West Coast, because of the work you've done in Los Angeles and San Diego, you're a serious actor. Yeah, it's, it, I really find that to be true. I, I, um, I'm sure there are people here that will disagree, but, uh, but mainly here I think I'm seeing, it's, it's that thing of, the irony is it's that typing thing. Will Parker's your first show, and so it's kind of, you're that musical comedy guy. Uh, even though I've done plays here, I did After Crazy For You, I did Lincoln Center to Twelve Dreams, and then Picasso at Le Pan Agile. Imaginary Friends. And Imaginary Friends. But it's still that musical comedy thing, whereas in on the West Coast, 
at the Taper at the Amundsen South Coast Rep, the Old Globe Theater, Pasadena Playhouse. I've done more plays, and so I'm I'm much more of a considered much more of a serious actor out there in quote Tinseltown. Um, I think than I am here now. I know that people they're going to get a little the niggers in a twist and saying, "Oh no, we've always thought of you as a serious actor," but it, but that's my perception. And how, um, um, you know, depending on what the calls that I get for different shows and different things and, and stuff, a lot of them are musicals. Some are plays, some, uh, but, but more, more, more plays, please. Well, I think we're certainly glad that the musical comedy Harry Groner is back yeah. on Broadway and uh, starring eight times a week in, in uh, Monty Python, Spamlet as King Arthur and looking very kingly. Well, thank you. Even, I feel kingly. Even without the crown. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Center. Thanks. It's been a joy. Thanks, Harry. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap. And thank you.